0: He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 God holds the universe in his hands like a fidget spinner. No part of creation could seek to challenge Him or even thwart the tiniest of His plans. There are no maverick molecules in the universe that threaten to frustrate God's will. Nothing can keep His purposes from coming to pass. Not even evil. See, God uses even evil to accomplish good. He produces glory from suffering. The chief example of this is the cross. Men mean it for evil, but God? He means it for good. In Jesus' death, we see our cosmic treason, the sincerity of sin, as well as the severity of God's love for us. His commitment to us. At the cross, we see God's manifold wisdom on display. We see the brilliance and the beauty of God as Jesus bleeds for the sins of the men and women he created. God uses the grotesque crucifixion of the most magnificent person who ever lived to bring about the salvation of Of all who would trust in him. God's will gets done. He's got the whole world in his hands. What we'll see as we work through Acts chapter 5 this morning, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42, what we'll see is that God is continually changing opposition and affliction into opportunities for witness. And we'll learn that he's got the whole world in his hands. That's the main idea this morning. I've said it a little bit more academically, if you will, but just simply, God is sovereign over signs, the Sanhedrin, and suffering. Your outline will reflect that. Let's pray and get started together, Father. We need to encounter Jesus this morning. We need to learn to trust you again this morning. We thank you that you are faithful when we are faithless. We thank you that when we falter and we fail, you love us the same because you've adopted us into your family in Christ. We come before you again this morning in search of grace. We come to Jesus, the fountain of life, hoping to have our thirst quenched. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. You would give us clarity of thought, and you would provide me with eloquence of speech that we might hear your voice reverberate in this place. Your word never fails. It creates and changes. It accomplishes what you say it will. Accomplish your will in us this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been walking through the book of Acts, and my summaries are going to get a little bit shorter now at this point. I've been giving you like every detail up to this point, but we're, we're going to, you know, i guess summarize a little bit. Basically, to summarize the whole book, Jesus goes up, he ascends to the throne in heaven where he rules and reigns. The Holy Spirit comes down and fills up God's people. And God's people, the church, goes out to witness about the good news that Jesus Christ has died for the sins of men and has been raised for the justification of all who will trust in him. And so we've just been saying, Jesus goes up, the spirit comes down and the church goes out. The resurrected Jesus tells us and gives us this pattern in Acts chapter one before he ascends to the throne. Verse eight kind of serves as a mini great commission that the whole book revolves around. He says, uh, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the book actually breaks down into that pattern. We see a witness in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then on to the ends of the earth. So that's what's happening. The Spirit comes. The church is born. Christ is preached. Men and women are saved from their sins, reconciled together, and things are going pretty well. But the religious establishment becomes upset. They imprison John and Peter, tell them to shut up about Jesus. John and Peter say, uh, We're going to obey God instead of you. They pray, God's Spirit comes, and the place that they're praying in is shaken, and they are strengthened as they boldly continue to proclaim Christ. And then we're given a snapshot. Second snapshot, kind of a social media post of the early church of how good things are going. Everybody has everything in common. Uh, they're taking responsibility for one another's needs so that those who are in the body of Christ don't know what it is to want something. The wealthy among them are like, I have an extra house. I'm selling it so that I can meet your need. And just as importantly, those who are in need among them are happily accepting that aid. But then something there's a twist. We're told in verse 36 of chapter 4 that this guy named Joseph sells a field and then he brings all the proceeds and lays it at the apostles' feet. And people, people like this action, like this is really sacrificial. This is above and beyond even the call of duty. What love. And they they like, we're going to change your name, Joseph, to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And then the, the scene shifts a little bit at the beginning of chapter 5 and we meet Ananias and Sapphira. And what happens is they plan to kind of try to trick the church. Try to trick God. They're like, we we want as much love as Barnabas is getting. You know? Our names mean beautiful and gracious already, but we want to be called something like really cool, like better than Barnabas. And so we, we they hatch this plan. We're going to, we're going to sell our property and then we'll keep some of it for ourselves and we'll give the rest and we'll tell them that the rest is actually all of it. They're apostles. They're not real estate agents. They'll never figure it out. And then they go to actually carry out the plan and they get called out on their sin. Peter says, why are you lying to God? And Ananias dies. And then Sapphira comes in later because the church met all day at this point. I pointed that out to you last week, like you guys get upset about an hour and a half. They're they're there all day. Three hours later, she rolls in. She was doing her hair so she would be ready to receive all those thank yous. She rolls in and Peter asks her, hey, how much did you sell the land for? She says the same thing as her husband Ananias and she too dies. And and what we learn is that God is holy that he is serious about sin, that his wrath and his love and his goodness and his severity, they all work together. That he wants people who are really committed to Jesus. He won't have his church split asunder by liars. And verse 11 leaves us, Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. It brings us to our text today. Read with me at verse 12. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade or portico. And then look at verse 13. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers. Multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Things are going well for the early church. I mean, the floodgates are open. This Jesus movement is booming. I mean, they, they've got more people coming in than the build did when it was, they did the pay your age thing recently, right? They, they are blowing up. But verse 13 is really interesting. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke Well of them. What's going on is is the miracles are drawing genuine Christians, those who are genuinely changed by God and the gospel, those who really need Jesus, they're, they're drawn by the miracles. Those who want to play church, those in positions of power, those who are prideful, well... Joining this Jesus movement really isn't worth risking their lives. See, they could get caught playing the game, just like Ananias and Sapphira. And so it's not, not worth the risk. They won't dare to join the church. And so uh, the miracle of Ananias and Sapphira's judgment, it was kind of a negative miracle there, keeps those pretenders away But it is no problem, no obstacle for those who would genuinely be changed by the gospel. Here's what I want you to see. God cares about the purity of his church. He's not willing to jettison his righteousness and justice in order to please consumers. He doesn't care about quantity. He's about quality. Jesus is building his church and he's not going to use cheap materials. He's not going to use imitation stones, but living stones. He's about people that have a personal reality with him. He doesn't want misrepresented by somebody that just labels what they're doing Christian. He wants somebody who's sold out to him, who's all in. And and what we see here is that the poor are coming. They're believing the gospel. They're grabbing hold of it. But the prideful and the powerful, they've got too much to lose. It's a little bit like the rich young ruler. Jesus says, sell everything and follow me. And he goes away sad because he doesn't recognize how much he needs Jesus. The poor, though, here, well, they they recognize it. They don't have anything left to lose and so they bring their nothing to Jesus. They give Him everything. And they get everything. This is why it's so hard For us as Americans, it's so hard for the wealthy, it's so hard for the powerful and the privileged to come to Jesus. Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Why is it so hard? Because you get fat and happy and you think you have all you need. And you don't recognize eternity is out in front of you. And so you make your barns swell, you knock down those little barns, you build bigger ones and keep sowing into the things of this earth instead of the things of God. You don't recognize that you don't have all you need. That you need a little bit more in the long term than a really good 401k. You don't recognize that God's wrath is coming, that there is a judgment that will fall rightfully on all men and women are found outside of christ the poor though they recognize their need they've got their eyes set to a time when things will get better see god turns their suffering their affliction into an opportunity for them to see clearly his goodness and his mercy look who it is that's coming the sick Laid on cots and mats. Look who's coming. The sick, those tormented by unclean spirits. That's who's coming and that's who is being healed. God turns opposition and affliction into opportunity to display his glory. The gospel is good news to the poor. But it doesn't seem all that good to the rich and to the powerful, to the prideful. Friends, I think some of us here this morning might need to lose our religion a little bit. And what I mean by that, you know who's not coming? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrins, the people that have it all and know it all. They're not daring to join the church. They don't see their need. They don't see how beautiful Jesus is. That they're not willing to come and say, I need you. Social status and religion and powers might do you well for these 50 to 100 years on earth, but it will fail in eternity. You need Jesus. Lose that Faux religion in favor of personal reality with Jesus and his church. There's true joy there. God uses these miracles not only to reconcile the poor unto himself, but to authenticate the church. He's validating the ministry of the apostles. He's saying, Jesus is alive, he's ruling and reigning from heaven, and these are his ambassadors. They speak with his authority. They're his apostles. He's verifying their ministry, and he continues to do this in verses 17 on down through 26 with a somewhat comical prison break. Read with me. Then the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him who belonged to the party of the Sadducees. They were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him Arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in the front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found uh, no one inside. And as the captain of the temple police and the chief of priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. The commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. You've got to love this scene. It really is funny. They're like, y'all are teaching in the temple. Uh, you're becoming more popular than us. We don't like that. You're arrested. Now, again, again, this is like the second time they've tried this. A night in the clink will sober you up. You'll be done with all this Jesus stuff. But God uses this opposition as an opportunity to verify that he is with the apostles, not the Sanhedrin. That the apostles and their ministry, well, It's legit. And so he sends an angel that busts them out of prison, and the angel says to him, "Look, look look, you know what got y'all put in here? I want you to keep doing that. You all have gotten into the right kind of trouble. Go get into some more. Love it." And then like the next morning, you've got the, the high priest and all these Israelite leaders, like all the players are there, and they're, they're gathering together. they're putting together this big trial kind of confront the apostles. Like, all right, to one of their servants, go get those guys. Bring them in. Bring in the prisoners. Servant comes back. Well, you see, the the thing is, we we, we can't find them. What what do you mean you can't find them? Well, like the guards are there, the doors are locked, but inside, uh, no Jesus freaks. Not there. They're baffled, they're trying to figure out what's going on, and some other guy rolls up and he's like, these idiots are back where we arrested them the first time! They're so foolish! You just kind of see what God's doing. He's saying, whatever political power the Sanhedrin has, it's nothing compared with the power of the Spirit. He turns their opposition into an opportunity to prove that he's with the apostles. And he turns their trial into an opportunity for them to proclaim Christ. He's got the whole world in his hands. Verse 27. Hold that thought. We need to ask a question before we go there. Why is it that these Sanhedrin, these Sadducees, the Pharisees, all these guys, why is it that they would want to arrest the apostles? There just seems to be no... No examination of the truth. We see in verse 17, it says, they're filled with jealousy. Y'all see that? Now, don't, don't miss this. This is kind of a little bit of a theme, kind of been carrying over. But back in 431, when they had prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken and they were all, here's the word, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Then, look at Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias in particular, in verse 3 of chapter 5. Peter says, Why has Satan, here it is, filled your heart? And now we see that the Sadducees and those who are opposing the apostles are filled with jealousy. I heard a great illustration this morning. I listen to, to sermons on Sunday morning when I can. I try to. And uh, typically, I have a rule where I listen to things that are unrelated. But this illustration is just too good, and I don't want you to think I'm really smart. Uh, it's by a gentleman of the name of H.B. Charles. And uh, you want to Google him later. His podcast is Cutting It Straight. Brilliant preacher. Love him. Uh, but he had a wonderful illustration. I'm going to share it with you. Uh, two sick men share a hospital room. One is placed by the window, and the other by the wall. And each day, nurses would come in, and they would prop the man by the window up so that fluid could drain from his lungs. And when they propped him up, he he would look out the window and describe for the man by the wall what he saw. Marching bands going by. Lovers sharing a picnic, a father teaching his son to fish, on and on and on. This brought great joy to the man by the wall, and so it continued for many days. Until an alien thought entered the mind of the man by the wall. Why does he get the bed by the window? Why do I have to experience all of these things secondhand? One night later on, man by the wall heard the man by the window begin to choke. He could have quickly and easily alerted the nurses, but he did nothing. He waited until the choking and the gurgling ended in deathly silence. Nurses came and they removed the man by the wall or by the window from his bed. the man by the wall waited. And when the time was right, he requested that he might be moved by the window. After he was moved to the place by the window, nurses had left the room. He, He could hardly contain his excitement as he propped himself up to look out the window. And when he did, he was shocked to find a blank brick wall. You see, what you see is more determined by what's in you than what's around you. What you see is determined by what you are filled with. The religious leaders cannot see the beauty of what God is doing in the gospel. They can't see the glory of Christ crucified for their sins, raised for their justifications because they're filled with jealousy. They can't see the truth because they're blinded by the lie. Let me ask you, What are you filled with? Let's do jealousy in particular because it it will sneak in the back door of your heart and then burn the building down. Is Is there someone in your life that you are jealous of? And I'm not talking, oh, I'm so jealous of you. I'm talking, that when you see them succeed or you see what they have, it makes you sick to your stomach. Who are you jealous of? Friends, where that exists, let me encourage you to pray for yourself, to confess that sin, to repent of that sin, and to pray for the person that you're jealous of. Learn to give thanks for what God has given you. Lest in your foolishness you sin and end up by another blank brick wall. Repent of your sin and rejoice for what God has done and entrusted in somebody else's life, and rejoice in what He's entrusted to you. Gratitude is the great antidote to jealousy and to greed, it will keep you from becoming green with envy. Give thanks to God, trust and obey. See clearly. Be filled not by jealousy or by the predilections of your wicked desires, but be filled by the Spirit. God continues His work, showing His goodness and His glory at this trial of Peter as the Sanhedrin brings charges against the apostles verse 27, after they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach, he won't even say Jesus' name, not to teach in this name? Look, here's our word again, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's Blood. It's really bad PR for the religious establishment to be guilty of killing the guy that's being proclaimed as the Messiah. Like it's just not a good look. And the accusation here is actually, we told you guys to shut up about Jesus and you haven't done that. And now Jerusalem's full of the teaching. He's like unwittingly testifying to the fulfillment of Jesus' words in 1.8. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is now filled with the teaching of God. Why? Because the apostles have witnessed. Jesus' words are coming to pass. He's got the whole world in his hands. And Peter continues to show us this truth as once more we see this opposition is turned into an opportunity for witness. Peter turns his testimony into a sermon and the witness stand into a pulpit. And he preaches in response, verse 28, sorry, verse 29. Peter and the apostles together replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. Like had murdered instead of have, because he's alive. Verse 31 God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter says we are guilty as charged. We haven't shut up in response to your command because God has told us to speak up. We're guilty as charged because there is salvation in no other name. We're guilty because Jesus really is good news. You really did kill him. And yes, you're guilty of his blood, but that same blood can wash away your sin if you will just trust him. Some gifts are hard to receive. Like getting a dieting book on your birthday right? A little hard to receive that with thankfulness and gratefulness. And the same thing is true of the gospel. It's abrasive. It says, you are a hot mess. You are more wicked than you ever dared to dream. And in Christ, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. This is you, what you have to do to be right with God is give up all of your self-righteous efforts and trust in Christ alone. And people, we don't like that. We, you know, we like pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's not how God works. God says you can't save yourself because you're dead. I have to save you. Friends, Jesus has come. He went into the grave for you. And he's risen from the dead so that you can have peace with God. You can't do it any other way. There are no private deals with God. There's only one way to have peace with Him. There's only one way to have relationship with Him. And it's through Jesus Christ. Only His blood can atone for your sin. You must trust Him. I love how boldly the apostles speak here. I think they're able to do it because they know who they are. Which comes from knowing whose they are. They belong to the God who holds the whole world in His hands. They say, we're witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. He's here with us, in us. They're able to faithfully proclaim God's message because they know whom they have believed. The God of the universe who is sovereign over their signs, that they perform, he's sovereign over their trial, and he's sovereign over all the Sanhedrin, even their deliberations. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, Sanhedrin, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Go figure. I mean, the, the, the apostles had just said, You are supposed to be religious leaders, but your whole religion, like the point of it, is Jesus and you've missed it. You have missed Jesus. He's the point of Judaism. And they're basically saying, a Judaism that doesn't end with Jesus is in opposition to Jesus. God is with us, not with you. And the Sanhedrin goes, we're going to kill you. That's wrong. This is what happens, verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel... A teacher of the law who was respected by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, "'Men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following.' He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men. Leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. And they, the Sanhedrin, were persuaded by him, And so what happens is Gamaliel is the most famous and respected teacher of the day. He, he was learned, learned, I don't know if that's a word. He studied under Rabbi Hillel. He trains the one that we know as Paul the Apostle. Paul studied under um, Gamaliel. He's, he's kind of a big deal, all right? People know his name. So when he speaks up, everyone listens. They're like, Yo, Jesus, geez, geez, trying to say something. All right? And he says, first thing he does is like, let's get these guys out of here. So he removes the agitation by removing the apostles. And then he says, look, we've seen this movie before. Let's just wait it out, right? This is just a flash in the pan. If we're patient, just like these other guys that pretended to be Messiahs and rose up, this too shall pass. Now, you can look at the end of his counsel and go, this isn't really great counsel because like if it's not of God, it won't succeed, uh, you know, there are plenty of false religions in the world. And they've, they've survived and thrived, right? He's not making a, a blanket like if something succeeds or continues to exist, that God's behind it. He's doing, he's making a very specific application to their situation. Like you might uh, in a personal crisis or something's going on in your life and you go, you know what? The best thing to do here isn't to act yet. It's to wait it out, to be patient, to wait and see. His counsel here is persuasive. And they decide not to kill the apostles. Don't miss this though. God has put Gamaliel in his position for such a time as this. God is not restricted to using only Christians to accomplish his will. He can use anybody, anywhere, anywhere. Anytime. He's got the whole world in His hands and He's got Gamaliel in His hands. Sovereign over the Sanhedrin. And He is sovereign over suffering. Look at verse 40. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Don't don't miss, this flogging is likely the 40 lashes minus one and and what they would do is they'd take a a whip that was made of leather, had bits of of bone and metal in it and they would whip you twice across the back and once across the chest. People died from it. This isn't a soft option. God uses Gamaliel to preserve their lives but not their comfort. They prayed, remember back in chapter 4, for courage to endure the suffering that was to come. Well, here it is. They are beaten for preaching Christ. And They're ordered to stop it. They don't stop, though. They don't go out from there questioning, how can God be good if we're suffering? How could you do this to me, God? They don't go out resenting God. I'm so mad at you. How could you let this happen? No, no, no. They don't leave downcast. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing. They went out rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. No opposition can put down the word of God. The Pharisees can't stop the gospel from going forward. Neither can anyone else. Men have tried for years, but the blood of the martyrs has proved to be the seed of the church. and The church has blossomed up around the world. They rejoice that they are counted worthy of suffering on behalf of Jesus' name. Now, why are they rejoicing? Is it because they're, you know, they're masochists? Like, no, they're not going, Ah, hit me again, it just feels so good, I love it. It's not, not why they're rejoicing. They're not leaving saying, oh, how wonderful this pain is, but how wonderful the name of Jesus is. And this is what we see in their suffering and what needs to be seen when you suffer. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is so good They are experiencing him, they're experiencing reality with him. It's so good that even after they have been beaten, they can walk away rejoicing because he is greater than any comfort, than any treasure, than anything that could ever be offered in all of creation. He's better than that. And he's worth taking a few whippings for. He's worth dying for. They walk away going, He told us that if we want to follow Him, we're going to have to pick up our cross and follow Him and die to ourselves daily. We're finally getting to do it. We're dying to ourselves. Our lives are worth nothing because He's given us everything. They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. And if they kill this body, he's just going to raise us up other ones, new ones, better ones, when he makes all things new. That's what they're suffering. That's what your suffering is meant to proclaim. That Jesus is supreme. That He is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. That He's infinitely beautiful. I look at this, this boldness and it, it fires me up a little bit. I don't know if y'all saw Infinity War. It was like a scene, where like Thor gets his hammer back and he's like ready to attack the bad guy. He's like, "Bring me Thanos!" All pumped up. And I'm like, yeah, let's go. I'm ready to fight Thanos. But look at, look, at, look at their courage, and it encourages me. Look how bold they are. I, I want to be brave. I want to be bold like this. And then I, I ask the question, how, how can I face down opposition and affliction and suffering with bravery like this? There's a scene in uh, the Lord of the Rings books and little hobbit Mary is on the battlefield, and he looks around him, and he sees death and, and decay and gore, and he is overwhelmed with fear. Tolkien writes, Such a horror was on him that he was blind and sick. He's terrified. He can't even move. And he looks across the battlefield, and he, he sees one of his friends, And she is just decked out in battle gear and she is going toe-to-toe with this towering and just great evil foe. And something happens to him. Tolkien writes, pity filled his heart and great wonder. And suddenly, the slow kindled courage of hobbits awoke. He Clenched his hand. What happens is is that when you see someone being brave for you, you yourself become brave. So, how can we face suffering and and persecution? How can we enter into opposition and affliction with with bravery like the, the apostles? We turn our eyes to Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. When you see Jesus being brave for you, you yourself will become brave. When you see Him going to the cross and looking through the sweat that drops from His brow to His eminent end, when you see Him spilling His blood for you, when you see Him victorious, risen from the dead, oh, you'll be filled with bravery. Church, you can trust Jesus in opposition and affliction because He is using those things as opportunities for you to witness to His goodness and His glory. You can trust Him. When the world hates you, He's overcome the world. When your body fails you, He's overcome the grave. When suffering bears down on you, you can know He's promised that glory is going to swallow up the problem of pain. Friends, you can trust God in any and every circumstance because He's in control. See, when you trust God with everything, you can face anything. When you trust God with everything, you can face anything. You can face anything because you belong to the God who has the whole world in his hands. The whole world is held in the pierced hands of Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for you. Trust him this morning. And to live. Let's pray. God, who are we that that you should die that we might live? Who are we that Jesus should come and live? the life that we each should have lived, die the death that we each deserve to die, endure the wrath that should have been due to us for all eternity. Who are we that he should rise from the dead that we might live and enjoy life together with you and with one another? Oh God, praise you. We praise you for Jesus. What grace is this? This is marvelous. You are beautiful. And we thank you. We give you glory and praise and honor. Great is thy faithfulness. We're so happy that you've got the whole world in your hands. Amen.